morning, everybody. I invite you to grab your message notes. Uh, they're in, well, you should have them in your hand. And access your Bible, or the pew in front of you has a Bible. And in this hope series, we're talking about hope that moves friendships. We're going to revisit a relationship I spoke about a couple summers ago, David and Jonathan. And more than trying to be cute and fit this in a series on hope, because it is true that hope best moves horizontally through a relationship. In my uh, 51 years of life, but over 30 years of walking with the Lord, by far the biggest hope that's been transferred to me has been transferred horizontally. But this, what we're going to talk about this morning, these things are essentials for your life. You and I will never live into being the men and women that we want to be in Christ. We'll never live into our full redemptive potential without these four types of relationships, ever. You need this. And what I'm excited about is the fact that we have high schoolers and even middle schoolers here. We even have a grammar schooler here. Uh, and what's cool about that is I wish I learned this a long time ago, a long time ago, because it would have saved me a lot of heartache and brought me to some places I never would have gotten to. So let me pray for us and dive in, and we're going to have a great time together. Jesus, thank you for your word and the practicality and wisdom of it. Um, Lord, thank you that you made us relational, and you're right. It is not good that we be alone. You called us to be in community. And so guide us on this uh, time, in this time, and speak to us. I pray, you've heard me uh, for weeks praying that the conviction around relational dependency would grow in all of our lives. I need it, we need it. So we pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said... Amen. All right. You know, the success or failure of our lives, the success or failure of our lives is largely determined by the equipment we use. That's just an axiom for life. The equipment you access determines your success in life. How many of you would attempt to uh, heat a house with a butane lighter? Anybody? No, it would be futile, right? How about commuting to San Francisco on the 101 in the fast lane on a bike? That'd be crazy, right? Uh, how about flying across the Pacific Ocean on a hang glider? Yeah, that would be crazy. Just imagine, Monday night, the Warriors come for their decisive Game 7 win on Monday night, and they show up with no basketball shoes whatsoever. They're going to play the game barefoot. How crazy would that be? Or Buster Posey going to a coach saying, you know what, I'm going to catch today without a face mask. Right. So the reality is we all need essential equipment to be who God called us to be in whatever arena, whether you're a Christian or not. You just need that for life. I am proposing to you, and it's no understatement whatsoever, the most overlooked essential in life needed for our hope-filled life in Christ is Christ-centered relationships, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered friendships. Now, this is true for your overall health, and I could access a number of studies. I've just spent my time this week, uh, some time this week, engulfed in study after study after study. I'll just pick the biggest study ever done on purpose and success in life. It's called, it's a 75-year study. Now think about that. Done at Harvard. It's called the, uh, Harvard, uh, the Grant Study at Harvard. 75 years. The ones who started it passed it off and died before it was finished. They saw people from childhood to old age to ask the question, what makes people successful in life? And what brings about purpose in life? Uh, and what they found after 75 years that it was strong relationships that are the most important ingredient 
to living well over life. I could have told them that in one week, right? They don't need 75 years and all that money. That's strong relationships. The best example of this study would be Winston Churchill, in my opinion. Uh, the celebrated prime minister of Great Britain. Anyone heard of him? Winston Churchill? Okay. World War II? Churchill was connected deeply with all kinds of people throughout his life. He had a strong marriage. He had solid family relationships, many close friends. He had a large number of successful relationships, politically and otherwise. But on the other hand, Churchill had a number of terrible health habits, right? He smoked cigars all the time. He drank way too much. He lived off off of an unhealthy diet. He had bizarre sleep habits. Churchill never worked out, yet he lived to be 90 years old. How do you count for that? Uh, My favorite Churchill quote, by the way, is when the doctor asked him whether he exercised. He said, I get all the exercise I need being a pallbearer for my friends who exercise too much. (laughs) Is that classic Churchill or what? I could bring out the Alameda County study. I could bring out study after study after study. And the only reason I bring that forth is because science is proving that a successful life, a successful health factor in life, sorry, is relational connectedness. How connected we are to each other. Um, uh, Without it, isolation, staying hidden, it's lethal. It's lethal. It's lethal to your life. It's lethal to your spiritual life. It's lethal to your career, your spiritual health, all of that. I would just tell you that, honestly, God has used Christ-centered, connected friendships in my life to mold me, to encourage me, to align me, to reprove me when I veered off course, to equip me, and generally keep me in the game. I would not be your lead pastor over this period of time, if it wasn't for a strong connectedness relationally, I shudder to think where I would be at that without those people. So who are those people for you? People you trust with your very soul in relationships, even more than your own instinct. Now, humanly and horizontally speaking, our hope quotient is directly tied to one primary factor, christ centered friendships that's how god moves hope through christ-centered friendships but what does that look like i'm so glad you asked first samuel chapter 18 first samuel chapter 18 if you don't know where that is in your bible every bible has a table of contents Uh, let's jump in there we're going to meet david and jonathan or reacquaint ourselves most of us know david he gets all the press and most of us heard of jonathan but we don't really know his life and what he was about um, let me just give you a quick update. Anyone know what the name Jonathan means in Hebrew? It means gift from the Lord. Is that cool or what? Gift from the Lord. And Jonathan was the son of Saul, who's the king of Israel, first king of Israel at the time. Jonathan was everything Saul wasn't. Jonathan was filled with character. Jonathan was a tremendous warrior. I think it's what knit, initially, I know it's what knit him and David together. They both hated the Philistines and were skilled in the art of battle. There was a cool chemistry between the two. Jonathan was secure. Jonathan was personable. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. But Jonathan was the man who would never be king. And we'll see why. Uh, If you go one level deeper in the theological world, Jonathan's called a type. 
T-Y-P-E. Throughout the Old Testament, there are pictures of what the Messiah will be like. Jonathan is one of those pictures. His relationship to David is similar to how Christ is to us, even to the point of dying in defense of a relationship. We'll see that as we go through. Here's the four vital types of relationships you need in your life, hands down. There's no wiggle room. I'll go to my grave saying this. If I only had one message to give at any church, including this one, this would be it. You want to be and live into your full redemptive potential? You need community. I need community. These are four vital relationships. Here's the first. Perspective providers. Perspective providers. Seeing a reality that you're blind to. We all need that. We all have limits on our perspective. And we need faithful men and women in our lives, intimate men and women in our lives, to broaden our perspective and speak the God perspective over us. We're going to pick up in our story in chapter 18, right after David has killed Goliath. He's in the Valley of Elah, and if I had more time, I mean, I could give this in two hours, I'd build this out, but I think he literally has the head of Goliath in his hands when this conversation is taking place. He's, uh, he's on the battlefield, and for the first time, we're going to see their first encounter of David and Jonathan. David, uh, Jonathan's been watching David. He certainly has seen the whole thing played out. And now he walks onto the battlefield, and this is how they're engaged. Based on his passion as a warrior, his disdain for the Philistines, Jonathan's heart is drawn to the heart of David. There's a chemistry, an essential ingredient to friendship, a chemistry here. David's a warrior, David's a patriot, David's a man of God, just like Jonathan. Are you there? 1 Samuel 18? Let's look at it. After David finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became, and this is a key phrase, I would circle this, pray for this type of relationships in your life, one in spirit with David. Uh, The King James, the old King James version, says it this way, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That's how deep their chemistry went. The Hebrew verb there, one in spirit, literally means to bind together with ropes. Beautiful, isn't it? There was something here that bound them from the start together. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant. Now that might be a word you're familiar with, right? We are the PCC Peninsula what? covenant church, right? It's based on this very word. A covenant is a a three-way relationship. Horizontally, a relationship between two people. Vertically, God is in the center of it. Marriage is a covenant. The state will call it a contract, but God calls it a covenant. He enters that, and he sustains a marriage that's focused on him. That's what these two, they're not getting married, but they're saying, you know what? We want Christ, we want God to be in the center of this relationship. He made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now look at this, verse 4, this is key. Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, took off his robe. That would be the robe of the crown prince. And he gave it to David. He took off his tunic, that would be his crown. And he gave it to David. Key to any relationship. And he, even his sword, his bow, and his belt, he disarms himself of his weaponry. 
And he hands them to David. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to uh, give you a perspective. You're going to be the king. I'm not going to be the king. I am the rightful heir to the throne, but God has called you to be the king. Do you see how his perspective would be filled and widened because of this relationship? It's amazing. Men and women, I am the product of a band of brothers like this. Men, pacers above me, racers in my own uh, life stage, tracers below me, who speak into my life and give me a God perspective on my marriage, on my ministry, on my parenting, on my finances, on my character. They see things in me I don't even see in myself. I wouldn't be here without them. They stretch my vision. They lift my head. They remind me of the picture of who I'm to become, who God had in mind when he created me in the first place. Who is that for you? Who are you for someone else in this area, perspective provider? This would be a good time to tell you that I've left a text box after each one of these where you can write names down if you feel comfortable. Or if it touches you, just say, you know, write whatever you want in that area. We were never meant to go at it alone. We drift and we need men and women in our life to give perspective to us from God's point of view. We need that desperately. Well, not only was he a perspective provider, turn to page two. Uh, And let's talk about this area. And I'm going to pause and spend some time here because this area of truth telling, honestly, this is the area that I find in my 30 years of ministry in 30 years of intentional relationship, this is the area where people back out of relationships. This is the area when you come humbly with truth where people say, oh, how could you judge me? Oh, who do you think you are, God? Oh, why do you think you could say that? This is the area when you come, a truth teller, where you stand in the front of someone and say, I'm just here, and you put your relationship on the line and say, I love you too much to go forward, and I'm standing between you and that decision because I think you're about to make the worst decision of your life. This is the area where people bolt to their demise and shipwreck their lives. So hold on, everybody. Let's dive deep in this area. Truth-telling. It's in love, speaking liberating truths even when it hurts. With humility, keyword in love, With humility, but you speak the truth nonetheless. So we see how it started. It started with a perspective. Now we're moving forward a couple months in their relationship, David and Jonathan. And this aspect of their friendship brings out the quality of protection. Where perspective gives you the hope of what God wants you to be, truth protects you. It does. What did Jesus say in John 8? You'll know the truth and the truth will set you. Free, right. It brings freedom. So Jonathan's father, Saul, after the battle of David and Goliath and the parade he came home to, read it for yourself. It's a great story. He becomes jealous of David. He's really jealous, insanely jealous. And in the months between 1 Samuel 18 and 1 Samuel 19, no less than six times David has, uh, I'm sorry, Saul has tried to kill David. Just in a few months, right? David is in danger and at this point in 1 Samuel 19, there's a death warrant out for, uh, for David's life. And Jonathan could have stayed silent. At this point, this was Jonathan's way to get right back onto the throne. 
by being silent. But he was in a covenant, a three-way relationship. And so he takes the courage to tell the truth. Let's look at it. 1 Samuel 19, 1-3. Saul told his son Jonathan, and all the attendants killed David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David, verse 2, and he warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. He didn't have to say that. He could have just quietly backed away. David gets killed, and he goes right back to being on the throne. Right? But he loved this guy. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you, and I'll tell you what I find out. Now, the text goes on in chapter 19 to tell how Jonathan spoke truth to his father Saul. He tried to advocate for David. You know how Saul rewarded his son? He tried to kill his son. This guy's insane. But Jonathan loved David enough to be a truth teller, to tell him the truth. Now, let me ask you, honestly, who loves you enough to tell you the truth? I constantly have to ask myself the question, and, and this is one of my propensity, have I disarmed myself enough to let my band of brothers speak the truth into my life? Or will they get a reaction or a response that makes them go, why do you make this difficult for me? Who loves you enough to tell you you work too much? You have unhealthy eating habits. Who loves you enough to say you have an anger issue? Who loves you enough to say, I think you're neglecting your spouse? Who loves you enough to say, your children are getting leftovers? And I think they're worth more than that. Leftovers from you. All these things have been said to me by my band of brothers who are truth tellers in my life. See, with this band of brothers, we have an unspoken saying, and it's this. I'd rather let you into the wave of my temptation than have you experience the wake of my destruction. I'd, let you, I'd rather let you know where I'm vulnerable, susceptible, rather than have you have to clean up the mess I made because I walked down a road of sin. And as we know, sin is messy and it leaves collateral damage everywhere. Who is that for you? Who knows where you're vulnerable? Who knows where you're susceptible? Who loves you enough to walk along those roads with you? Take a moment with that box. Reflect on that. Maybe some names come to mind. This is a tough one for me because right now I'm, I'm in this posture right now with three men in my life that uh, I fear are shipwrecking their lives. And I can't, I can't control them. It's not my job. I'm not their savior, but I am their truth teller. And I want to stand before God one day and say, I fulfilled what you called me to do. But it's hard. I shudder to think where I would be without the men in my life who, were, uh, who are truth tellers, I don't know where I'd be without them in my life. I certainly wouldn't be on this platform having the credibility to do what I'm doing. 
There's another type of relationship, heart healing, heart healing that we all need. These are people that lead your heart into the presence of God. Now we're going to move forward even more in this relationship with David and Saul and and Jonathan. David's convinced Saul's never going to change. He's convinced he's a lunatic. He's convinced that Saul wants him dead. And he's about to become a fugitive and become public enemy, enemy number one. Jonathan and David devise a plan to discern the truth because Jonathan still can't believe it. But Jonathan's battle-weary. And at this critical point in his friendship with David, in the only account where Jonathan asks David of something in their whole relationship. Now, don't miss that. Because you're not going to have a healthy relationship if you try to keep score. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work in your marriage if you're married. It doesn't work in any relationship. Throw the scorecard out. It's the only way to have a healthy relationship. And in this case, in the only place where Jonathan asked David of something, something from David, we see, and we're going to read in a minute, and what he asked him is not even anything much. He's losing heart. Jonathan's losing heart. And in an incredible display of authenticity and vulnerability and courage, he comes to David and only asks this of him, I need you to reaffirm your oath. Let's just reaffirm this covenant that we have. His heart's breaking. He's losing hope. And he needs someone to buoy him. Have you ever been there? I cannot tell you how many times. I I tend to lean towards depressive thinking, depressive thinking. If it wasn't for people in my life that wouldn't let me lose heart, oh my, I can't imagine where I would be. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. You know what's going on there? Jonathan's going, David, I'm losing hope. At the core of my being, I think this is a losing battle. I'll fight to the end for you, and he did. I just need to know that you're still in this. Reaffirm your oath. Because Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Why is this important? I would just love if you gave me your best attention for the rest of the time, but especially around this. Uh, To the Hebrew in the Old Testament, and what I'm talking about, heart, it doesn't mean what we mean here in the West, like the seat of your emotion, I give my heart to you. To the Hebrew, the heart was the driver's seat of the life. Everything was controlled from the heart to the Hebrew. And so that's why the wisest man who ever lived and the wisest book ever written could say in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Because, why? For everything in your, you do flows from your heart. You, are, uh, you have a control center, guard it. Your heart is the most important thing about you. It's the best thing you bring to any relationship. It's the best thing you bring to any field of study, any place of employment, your heart is the most important thing about you. Look, I don't want to discourage anybody. Your looks are going to fade. Your wealth is going to fade. It's going to pass on to someone else. I'm not down on all this stuff. Your heart endures forever. And the propensity of our heart is to be half-hearted towards the Lord or towards things that matter most. As a matter of fact, if I had two more hours, I would go off and tell you how that very thing in you, your heart, is the ground zero of an all-out celestial attack in warfare. All of hell is focused on your heart. 
It is. All the demonic realm, Satan himself wants to discourage you, and so he'll go right after your heart. It is the ground zero for spiritual warfare. The battle for our hearts is everything. Everything. Everyone look right here, please. And it can't be fought alone. You don't have it in you to fight this battle by yourself. You don't. I love my wife. She's an amazing woman. She's become more amazing as we've grown in marriage. I can't love her with the heart God wants me to love her with by myself. My band of brothers has helped me that. I love my kids. I, I love going home more than I love going to work, to be fully honest with you. I just love my kids. But I can't love them with the heart they deserve in a Christ-centered dad alone. I love you. I, I tell you that all the time. Everything I write to you, and I mean it, I tell you, I love being your pastor. But I can't bring my whole heart to this ministry alone. We need a band of brothers or a band of sisters around this. There are times we all suffer from hearts that are broken, cynical, divided, weary, discouraged. We all have times of despair. I'm in a season of brokenness right now over my dad's death. Jesus never intended you to walk that journey alone. Who have you let in to steward your heart? Who has entrance? Who do you go to when the bottom falls out? That's how hope moves. When you're brokenhearted and people step in and say, you know what, let me just carry your heart. I'll be tender, I'll be faithful, and I'll just keep it before the Father for you. And when you have the strength again, I'll hand it back to you and you can run again. I can't tell you how many times I've been in those places. Thank God, thank God for the relational investment I've made, again, with a band of brothers who step in. They don't ask. I don't call them. They just step in and say, I'll, I'll carry I'll carry you. I got you. See, this is way more than a small group where you just fill out answers and give the right answer. It's so much, and I'm not down on that. But it's so much more than that. I'm not talking about joining a group. I'm talking about community, Christ-centered community. It's our only hope. Soul sharpening, point three, or point four. This is point three's cousin, our last aspect. Have we gone too fast? Am I being too heavy here? Are we okay? Okay. Sometimes my grief leaks, and I'm in a period of grief. Perspective providers, truth tellers, heart healers, soul sharpeners. This is point three's cousin. These are people who so encourage you spiritually, it transforms your walk with God. Uh, and what we're going to step into now, we've seen the whole arc of the relationship with David and Jonathan. Now we're at the end. This is the last experience these two are going to have together. And let me just tell you, it's so beautiful. It's crazy. Months, maybe years have passed since our last chapter. And now we're in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. David is a fugitive. David is public enemy number one. As a matter of fact, in the lunacy of Saul, he's unleashed all of Israel's army to look after one man and go get him and hunt him down and bring him back dead. Bring him back dead. Do you believe that? 
And so he's hiding in the Negev wilderness, a barren place, and he's, he's thirsty, and he's, he's tired, and he's going, wait a second, I thought I was going to be king. What am I doing in this cave if I'm going to be king? And no one can find him. In fact, the Bible says uh, that all of Israel's after him. If you want to see David's depressive state at this point, Psalm 54. Psalm 54 was written at this stage from one of those caves. And at this low point when he's by himself in David's uh, cave, when no one can find him, ah, oh, I just can't wait to see this in heaven, out from the shadows of the light shows up Jonathan. He found his cave. And he walks into it. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 15 says this, While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish. Now look at this. And he helped him find strength in God. Isn't that awesome? Uh, the literal translation of that from the original Hebrew is this. Look at this, everybody. He strengthened his hand in God. I love that. This is what a soul sharpener does. It comes alongside you and strengthens your hand. It strengthens your resolve to do the right thing. It strengthens you to do a U-turn and go the right way. It strengthens you to walk back into that relationship with all the character God's called you to be. It strengthens you to confess your sin in humility and ask forgiveness from the people you wronged. This is what soul sharpening does. Don't be afraid, verse 17, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. More perspective. You will be king over Israel. I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And then Jonathan walks out of the cave. And David remains in Horish. Jonathan risks his life to give him this message. My friend, you're going to make it. You're going to be king. I know you don't believe that. Trust in my words over you. Amazing. Who is that for you? Who is a soul sharpener that strengthens your resolve and gets you excited to do the right thing, as scary as it is? No wonder at the end of their life, and this isn't in your notes, uh, at that point, Jonathan walks out of the cave, a battle ensues, and Jonathan dies. And David never saw him again. And that his uh, hearing of the words, just take these notes. We're not going to go deep here. But in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, if you wonder, gosh, how intimate should I be with these people? Look what saw, uh, David says over Jonathan. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. Wait, they weren't related by blood, but it was like they were. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Translated, your love for me was more intimate and powerful than any sexual experience I could ever have with a woman. It was so much better than the thrill of sex. It was tighter and more intimate. It's what God's designed for all of us, to have that kind of intimacy with each other. And then he says, how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Four essentials we all need. Christ-centered community, gang, it's essential equipment for, the life, for life. It's the best investment you'll ever make. David knew thousands of people, and I would just say this in closing. All friends aren't created equal. They're not. 
You don't have the relational capacity to have this type of intimacy with a lot of people. David knew thousands of people. He only had one Jonathan. Only one. So I'd invite you to reflect on who it is that's a perspective provider, a truth teller, a heart healer, and a soul sharpener in your life. And ask God to raise these people up. I'm convinced they'll come because he wants that for you. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for this beautiful relationship between these two men. God, I pray that you would do this for us, that you would create in us the conviction around a community of brothers and sisters in our lives so that we don't do it alone. Jesus, you promised in this world we're going to have trouble. But then you said to take heart because you've overcome the world. I believe with all my heart this type of community is part of the overcoming life. So raise up the conviction in all of us, Lord, to um, prioritize these types of relationships. We love you. Thank you. We pray these things in Christ. Oh, Jesus, thank you too for being our Jonathan. Thank you for entering into covenant with us. When you raised that glass at the Last Supper and said, a new covenant I want to make with you, thank you. Thank you for giving your life so that we can live fully to be the people that you called us to be. We so love you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.